Hey, Radically Genuine listeners, we have an urgent announcement before we start today's episode. At this pivotal moment, Western societies are entrenched in a profound mental health crisis, partly influenced by how we understand and treat human suffering. Common and expected reactions to stressful events are being pathologized, inaccurately categorized as psychiatric disorders, and haphazardly treated with psychiatric drugs. Alarmingly, Patients are frequently not informed about the potential risks linked to these drugs, and medical misinformation is rampant. This absence of informed consent represents a serious ethical violation, depriving individuals of their fundamental right to make fully informed decisions regarding their mental health care. Industrial deception amplifies the perceived benefits of these drugs while downplaying their well-documented harms. As a result, adverse drug reactions and undiagnosed health conditions are frequently misconstrued as indicators of deteriorating mental health, trapping individuals in a cycle of enduring disability. The pharmaceutical industry has hijacked our collective understanding of mental health, molding medical professionals into legalized drug dealers through their training and influence. Additionally, mental health therapists are widely influenced by industry deception, political ideology, and shifting cultural norms. Who can we rely on for compassionate, ethical, and unbiased mental health care information? Where can we find the accurate resources needed to make informed decisions about our health care? What alternative explanations or treatments may exist? We're embarking on a bold mission to revolutionize mental health care. Our objective is straightforward, to connect individuals and families with ethical health care practitioners who respect your personal values and champion your right to medical freedom and informed consent. Our larger goal is to provide free access to science-based health information, empowering you to make informed decisions. We cannot consent unless we are informed. By fearlessly challenging the established norms of the medical authority, and the psychiatric industry, we're transparently revealing the limitations and potential harms of psychiatric diagnoses and treatments. We're rallying an army of supporters to help us reach our target of $150,000. This investment is pivotal as we will provide the initial funding necessary to launch our online platform and kickstart our programmatic initiatives. Together, we can save and transform lives. I've started the Conscious Clinician Collective, and you can visit theccollective.org to join or to make a donation to this important cause. We need an army of supporters. We must unite. Please join or donate. Visit theccollective.org. The link is in our show summary. In therapy, Radically Genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The beauty of meditation is that it can be done anywhere and anytime. For many, it may be difficult to turn off your mind. However, when you understand the science and benefits behind meditation, you can embark on your own daily practice with an open mind. On today's podcast, we discuss meditation. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. 
Roger McPhillin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. McPhillin. When I think about the pillars of health, it's a triangle for me. I believe that there are three necessary components to optimizing our life. In this physical world, it is time limited. We only have so much time on this earth. And in considering the, 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 the greater sense of just eternity, it is but a blip on a screen. And so in this physical world, if we are going to experience and evolve how we feel and what we experience in our body is really important. For me, that triangle, fellas, is exercise. It is diet. So it's how we move our body. It is what we put into our body to enhance our health and enhance our experience. And it is what I believe to be the third piece of this is the most powerful health intervention and mental health intervention that exists, and that is the practice of meditation. Mm. Now, <clears throat> in the Western world, meditation is very in vogue right now, but it is certainly not a trend. The idea of meditation, meditative practice, and altering consciousness has been around since the beginning of civilization in a lot of ways. It has evolved from a critical spiritual practice, which I still believe that is one of the most critical aspects, to a very science-backed with the use of modern technology to identify what actually happens through this process. So it didn't start with the Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> Explain. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> don't you remember in like the 1960s, the Beatles, the music band? Mm-hmm. They went on a whole uh, mindfulness meditation journey and spent time in India. And that's kind of when it started gaining popularity in the United States. Yeah, the 60s and the hippie generation. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but right now, I mean, it, it, it certainly has so many health benefits. I think traditionally, the spiritual aspect of meditation was to kind of provoke the qualities of kindness compassion, altruism, um, being able to connect with your higher self and connect universally. Um, but the investigation recently from you know, mental health benefits, for example, is that we understand that in all likelihood, we have this, this modern way of trying to measure mental well-being. There is not a more powerful intervention than med meditation the field of psychotherapy in itself if it is isolated from meditation or the entire psychiatric medical establishment nothing in itself is going to compare to the physical and mental boosts of a consistent and effective meditation practice well i'm hoping that we find out what that meditation practices because i'm sure a lot of people including myself when you meditate have a hard time because everybody always thinks about like remember ace ventura and do you remember the second one and he's doing all righty then and chanting <laughs> yeah. and then he leaves his body 
it's not about that, right? It's not about leaving the body. It's about taking moments per day to simply sometimes breathe, focus, right? Because I'm, I'm hoping you'll explain how you do it and how people can actually kind of get into a meditative state. I will. And I, and I think um, there's no just right or wrong way to do meditation. And it probably is on this continuum of things that we can do to enhance our focus, uh, improve our, uh, our mental state, decrease anxiety, feel more connected, decrease blood pressure, um, improve aspects of self-control, reduce chronic pain. I mean, it is improved sleep. It's so vast. And we'll try to do our best to be able to promote some of the studies and make sure that they are in our show summary. But just for, uh, for conversation today, I'm just curious, um, you know, you guys are, are middle age. What has prevented you from taking on a meditative practice in your life since both of you are health conscious in other areas? I'm just curious to know what the impediment has been. So for me, it, it really was, if I sit and I meditate, there are moments where minutes will go by and I'm still thinking about the same thing I thought about prior to meditating. And so sometimes I feel as if maybe... I'm not doing it correctly. <laughs> Thought. <laughs> Thought. <laughs> um, There's another one. I think it's the perception that what meditation is versus, you know, what, if I'm getting into that state of meditation, if it actually is really helping, believing that there is science to back it. Because until, you know, this podcast, talking to you, talking to Sean, I think myself and many people don't necessarily know how many scientific studies are out there that actually support meditation as one of the ways to maintain health. So for me, I think it's just a little bit of skepticism. So you're not even completely bought in. Not, not 100%. I'm about 99.9% .9 like antibacterial soap. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sean? Um, I've tried a couple times when I was living in California. You know, I've got the ocean there. So it just seems like something you can do to start off the morning. And uh, there's been multiple times when I had sat down and just tried to make it part of not a daily routine, but some type of a practice. And I just, I couldn't commit to it. Um, and the only times now I, I would bring it into my life is when I'm having difficulty falling asleep. I might um, use one of the techniques that I remembered reading about 20 years ago just to help relax my body and then drift off to sleep. Well, I think I can connect with the both of you on the challenges from the beginning. Um, um, this is probably a 10-year process for me, and it's, I would say it's only the past two years where my practice became really enhanced. Previously to that, I can honestly say it was a chore. It was an uncomfortable experience, a painful one sometimes, because the mind wants to work. The mind wants to predict, it wants to judge, it wants to evaluate, it wants to consider, it wants to go into the future, it wants to go into the past. And the impact of that on the body is you feel an urge, a sensation to do, right? It's a pull to do. And I've always been a thinker, an analyzer. One might even say addicted to the process. Right? L wanting to think, wanting to analyze, wanting to learn. And I used to say that that made me a very high-functioning 
anxious person or a high-functioning worrier. And then there's a sense of control that comes, like if the mind can predict the things that could happen, then you can have some sense of control in being able to prevent the worst outcomes. And then there is, it's kind of reinforced. And we live in a modern society where there is such ample opportunity for distraction. The mind can always work. The mind can always be distracted. There's always a phone. There's a television. There's a radio. There's a book. Constant stimulation. There's a computer game. There's a video game. Constant ability for the mind to hook into something. And we know that we are. We've kind of evolved that way. The mind to be able to attend to what is the most relevant stimuli because it's a survival mechanism. So the mind needs to work. It needs to hook on and attach to what is the most relevant threat. But when you think about it, that survival state, that survival state of being a human is what creates stress. And stress in short doses is health enhancing and a necessary survival experience. But the constant experience of stress, even at its mild level, is toxic. It's toxic on all levels. The brain releases cortisol as a stress hormone. That stress hormone creates inflammation. Inflammation is a state of disease. And to avoid that feeling, to not feel that, we turn to something to change that sensation. What can it be? Food. Alcohol. Another distraction. Something to change it. Right? So we know we're at, the we're at our best when we are in a state of calm focus. We all can get there. We do it in different ways. You get into a meditative state without intention to do that. We all do it. You might be driving your car and you're at one stage and then your brain waves shift and you get into a trance-like state into some way and you don't even know how you got to where you were. So you're actually acting on this subconscious uh, mechanism that is working for you. And that's the thing about learning, for example. There is an innate intelligence that exists within us, but it is our active problem-solving mind that is generally running the show. And unless you have the capacity to be able to slow that down, you will probably struggle to enhance things in your life that are so critically important. But like anything, it is a skill to be built. You can't just try it once in a while. And I'm now at the point where I can never go back. As it was such a struggle at one point to be able to get there, once you develop the skill and can enter into a meditative state, everything changes. Your, your consciousness changes. Can I ask some questions? Mm -hmm. 
over the course of this journey for you, there's many different types of meditation. I, I think I saw one thing that said there's 28 types, but who knows? <laughs> um, which ones did you try and which one has you have you settled upon? I needed to start with mindfulness. Okay. Why? Because mindfulness is something that can be engaged in without formally attending to this idea of entering into this thoughtless state. And that is kind of, you know, the way that meditation can be communicated in popular culture is it's just like the absence of thought. What does mindfulness meditation mean? It is just focusing entirely on the present. The ability to release or take a non-judgmental stance, staying open to all things and sensations and with all your attention and patience and discipline being fully connected to the present moment. So you can mindfully eat where all your attention is on the sensations. You can mindfully listen. You can mindfully breathe. You can mindfully walk. And it doesn't mean you sit cross-legged with your palms open and you're transcending your consciousness to a new spiritual state. Mm -hmm. It's the simple act of being connected to the present moment. And within that, I became an observer. Comparing an observer to what? Being a reactor. What's a reactor? Well, a reactor is you are responding to your experience. You are reacting to it as if it is all real. Go back to a previous podcast we had that we are all creators of our consciousness. Do we create our own heaven and hell? Yes. Yeah. So that means that internally, us three here sitting here have created our own realities. And we've lived there. A thought becomes real. A thought becomes our reality. An idea of who we are. An idea of who you are. What you say. What that means. Everything that is around us in the physical world gets interpreted through a lens. And we create stories around it. The mind creates an entire story. Mindfulness helped me sit and observe my story. It allowed for this process of what we call diffusion, which is a distance, distancing. So you can observe your emotions. You can observe your mind. You can observe sensations. Now, we're human beings, so it's very difficult to do all the time. So you make mistakes in the manner of which you react to your internal experience as if it's true. But I think the consistent practice of meditation enhances your experience in this world. Because you know there is no such thing as a future, right? Explain. Good Could, question. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the future has to be created in the mind. There is only a now. Always. There is always a now. There is no past. That's already occurred. There's definitely no future. We'd have to create it. So it is a concept to our minds. Our animals at home don't worry. They don't have the capacity to create a future. There is no future. 
There is only a now. So anything that is about a future, we have created it in our minds. So if you want to know some of the origins of stress, that, that is it. The mind's story. But if you trained yourself to be fully in the present moment, then you are enhancing that consciousness and that awareness and that attention. And you are training yourself to be. And that has significant mental health benefits. So you mean we're, we're worrying too much about things that have not happened or may not happen at all? If you worry at all, mm -hmm. it's about something that hasn't happened. Gotcha. Or you could be thinking solely on your past, create, creating predictive values for the future. So if you had negative things happen to you in the past, then perhaps your future thoughts are going to be more negative. Mm -hmm. That'd be well, accurate. Let, let's just take a step back. That's very accurate. And we, when we talk about when we're, we're creators of our experience, people will take what has happened to them attach an idea around it, a story around it, and then go about living that out as if it's real. So what I mean by that is that the mind is self-limiting. It tells you what you can do and what you can't do. It tells you who you are. It tells you your capabilities. It limits you so even when we talked about the mental benefits of doing hard things dr hannon talked about her experience on 75 hard she recreated a story about herself and her capabilities it was a shift in consciousness and so spiritually speaking this quieting of the mind, which comes later, I think with repeated practice, brings you in full connection to what is called the self. The self is who you are without that story, without your thoughts, without your previous experiences, your limitations. It is just, from a spiritual perspective, pure consciousness. And within that comes joy. Love, compassion, a connectedness to all people, and even creativity. And then potentially what is referred to as dharma, which is your soul's purpose. It is the mind that's limiting. And so mindfulness for me was the first step in trying to enhance conscious attention and awareness to the present moment to detach from the story. And it gave me those skills to do so. So in doing some research for this podcast, I saw a lot of something called default network or default mode. And if I'm going to tie that into what you just said, it seems to me that if a person such as myself really wants to get into a state of meditation, make it a practice every day, I would have to figure out what my default mode is. Like in other words, am I thinking too much about the future? Am I thinking too much about the past? What are my, where are my thoughts currently taking me? If I find that, I would have to figure out how to live in the present. I, th I think um, 
meditation and mindfulness is are the, different. Is the absence of figuring out. So I wasn't meditating with that question. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> you may. <laughs> you may be observing with curiosity uh, your default networks. You know what your mind does. The stories it creates, how it evaluates, how it judges, how it worries, what it ruminates on, what it goes back in the past. And that's a, that's a curious experience. Ah, my mind is doing that again, right? So, yeah, it's, let's go, let's it's go, from a distance. Yeah, let's go back to that. So if, if it is a practice and it's something you need to learn and teach yourself how to, if you recognize that you're constantly going back to those things, mm-hmm. wouldn't you then start working on subject techniques to overcome those? to go back into your default mode or whatever it is? Um, no, I think it's more of a gentle shift in your consciousness, your awareness. Being Recognizing that you're doing it again? You're observing, and then you're bringing your attention back to the present moment. Mm-hmm. For me, my anchor is my breath. We are always breathing. How often are we aware that we're breathing? Right? It's automatic. So we're trying, we're choosing where we shift our attention. Now, there's other things that can ground you in the present moment. It could be sensations in your body. Uh, it could be something that you're tending to, music. Right? It could be food, something you're tasting. What if I imagine just a, a monkey banging cymbals together in my head like Homer Simpson, just constantly repeating it, almost like a mantra? What, is that like a visual that you can focus in on? So you're focusing on that one thing? I'm curious as to why you went directly to a monkey with symbols. Because I just, I remember the visual from Homer Simpson on The Simpsons. Just in his mind. <laughs> well, now it's not going to get out of my mind. <laughs> so that's, that's a visualization meditation. Yeah. And, you know, I think there, there's value to that um, for, very, for very specific reasons. I and mean, one of the things in the sports world, in sports psychology, mm-hmm. is the use of visualization meditation where you're imagining an event or a goal in your mind's eye and if you're trying to improve your ability to carry that out that intense focus on that repeatedly is creating that experience so there's so much we don't know i mean your son's a baseball player he could actually practice baseball without practicing baseball when you uh swing the bat you don't think, oh, I have to take my step forward, transition my hips and my power, move my hands. None of that. There is the absence of thinking. It is all a reaction, right? That is automatic. That's been trained. And so in athletics, it is often the mind that gets in the way of performance. It is you train and you practice over and over and over and over again. So it becomes something that's automatic, that your reaction time it improves because it's the absence of thinking. Thinking slows down. So if you, if you go and take a foul shot in a basketball game and your mind goes, I really need to make this right now. The game, we're down by one with five seconds left or we're going to lose. Everyone's going to be upset with me right? It changes every experience in your body. So your, your form will be off. There'll be tension. There'll be fear. And you're going to increase the likelihood you're going to miss that because you won't be 
part of your training. So you can shoot 100 foul shots every day and be a 95% free throw shooter. And then when the mind starts working, you know, you might be a 50% free throw shooter or less. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, where the mind creates scenarios that are aversive. We are fear-driven at a certain level. The mind can create the worst-case scenarios. And that then becomes our reality. But if the mind created nothing, you were just fully connected to the present moment. You are then in enhancing and optimizing your performance. You are more likely to be in flow. There was one high school basketball game where I scored 30-some points. I don't think... I mean, that, I think Maybe you I, were playing against an elementary team. When <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, I think my, I probably averaged 12 or 13 points a game. And then I scored 30 some, I don't know, it was 33 points or something like that. All I remember is the absence of thinking, being in complete flow. The hoop looked so much bigger than what it was. If I missed a shot, I was shocked. Everything felt easy. And then I remember other times where there was just pressure on myself, right? Where my mind was like, I need to take over here. I need to do something here. I'm not doing enough, right? And then you're forcing everything. You're creating and responding to another reality. So getting back to Sean's point, visualization can help because, you know, you can visualize making foul shots, mm -hmm. seeing it, being relaxed, seeing the perfect form, the ball going right through over and over and over. And that repetition is actually training the body to do it. And then when you get into that same situation, you go back to that visualization. If you're not, because if you're not in that visualization, your mind could be on the threat. Yeah, the visualization is like the absence of thought. But I see that as part of ways that we can use the mind to increase performance. When I am looking in meditation as a way to connect to a experience or to shift the consciousness so if we start out i started out with mindfulness meditation i could mindfully walk into the building mm -hmm. right just feeling my feet on the floor we walk all the time i can mindfully make coffee in the morning you could mindfully grinding the beans smelling the beans boiling the water but if you go back to a podcast we had earlier which we just republished which was on um Habits, Light, the life-changing life habits. Yeah, I remember I brought off coffee in there, but I was tying it into meditation. But I probably meant mindfulness. I was just didn't know what I was talking about. No, you weren't even mindfulness. You weren't even doing mindfulness because you said that that allowed you to also plan for your day. Yeah, I did. I remember. And so I told you that you know that that's a routine you get into but your your mind is working you're, yeah. you're going into the future these are things that you might do that make you feel in control and i get it i understand it because there are times where i'll sit down to meditate and i know i have a lot of things to do mm -hmm. my mind wants to do them mm -hmm. my mind wants to figure it out my mind's afraid of what if i miss it if i don't do it right and sometimes i'm excited to do certain things so my mind is like looking forward to it and that's when it makes it all that much more difficult because you are then forced to sit with that sensation in your body. The sensation that we have a very difficult time being present with. How do you overcome it? You sit. <laughs> but how do you 
you, you, you can sit there for 20 minutes and not overcome it though, right? What, let's, let's go there. How, what's your, your daily meditation practice? How, how long? And do you set a timer? I don't. Um, my daily meditation process right now is between 20 and 30 minutes, at least one time a day. And the time of day varies? Or do you try to do it early in the morning as soon as you get up in a routine? I am, I am most frequently doing it in the morning. Um, I'm also trying to do it at night. I'm trying to commit to 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the night, but I can't always do that. So my, my time will most frequently look like a morning meditation of, ten, of uh, somewhere between 10 to 25 minutes. Five minutes here, five minutes there, 10 minutes here throughout the day. You know, close my door, my office, and just sit. And then, uh, you know, 50% of the time, maybe if everyone's upstairs. My problem is my house is a busy house, generally. So there's always a lot going on at night as people are getting ready for the day, the next day, and things are moving around, and the dogs have to go out, and the dogs bark. And people are going up and down stairs. And so it's been challenging for me. But there's times where it might be, you know, after 10 and everyone's kind of settled in bed. And then I, I, then I can, and the dogs are in bed. Mm. Their dogs are barkers. And then I can, yeah, I can do it. And that's a, that's a good space to be. Early morning is a really good space to be. I love meditating in the sunshine. But don't do it in the winter months here. It's hard because it's cold out mm -hmm. and dreary and you don't always get the sun. So I will vacillate back and forth doing it inside, doing it outside. When I was doing 75 hard, which I'm not done with, um, I'd often do a nighttime walk, 45 minutes. That'd be my outside and I just go in my backyard. The stars would be out. Take 10, 15 minutes, do it there. Now it is a peaceful experience it is joyful it's not some it's not something to overcome that feeling or that sensation it's not something you overcome it's something you be with and you notice when you allow without judgment and there's a tension on it that sensation that urge or even that negative emotion maybe it's anxiety maybe it's anger maybe it's sadness you just allow it to be there it will naturally dissipate so if you don't set a timer, how do you know when to stop? When do you know that your meditation has been, you know, complete or it's time to move on and do something else? Um, I don't always. Um, I do have a watch that mm -hmm. I always wear. So I might look, okay, right now it's 847. Mm -hmm. And I'll just get into a meditative state. I want to have enough time. And I'm not rushed to do it. So I'll just sit and be. And then generally, I become aware, you know, around 15 or 20 minutes. And I'll, then I'll take a look at my watch. And if I have time and I can stay in it longer, I'll go back to it. Because it's the constant process of observing, noticing, and bringing back. Mm -hmm. um, have I gotten to states where I've completely shut my mind off and my brain waves have kind of gone into a certain depth and I'm in a trans-like state. Of course, I've gotten there. It's great. It's 
great when you can get there. Why is it great? Because I, the, the human experience is one where your thoughts detract from it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I want to communicate to you fellas like your, your life is, is significantly enhanced by being able to get into a meditative state and then apply it to your day to day. So you are missing out on a joy and an experience and a level of peacefulness that you otherwise I don't think can get in the typical level of consciousness. So that's why I encourage you and all our listeners to start a meditative practice. There is an elation sometimes that occurs when you are the absence of thought. It is, I believe, where you are then connected to that pure consciousness. Where it generally is a sense of connectedness, of love, of joy. And there are times where there are messages I've said this on here. You guys thought I was, you know, I know you look at me like I'm crazy. No. <laughs> there, is a, there is a difference. I know now there is a difference between thinking and knowing. And sometimes those messages come in in a nonverbal way. So when we're talking about language and verbal representations of experience, we are limited. We are limited by what our language can create. A dog is a dog. A house is a house. But with the absence of language, there is more ability to develop a wisdom and a connection and an understanding. There are things that I know out out of meditation that I didn't think about. (laughs) Explain (laughs) Um, How can you know without thought? Yeah. The best way I'm going to, a big part of my life is my work. So I'm a therapist, a clinical psychologist. And there are challenges that people will bring into my office about their lives, about their personality, about what they've gone through and who they are. And I don't always know the direction to to take it and so my mind will work outside of the session how can i help this person what is this person saying what is being what is being left out how can i enhance their experience how can i help them improve their quality how can i get them to live how can i get them to change this destructive pattern and when i think about the scientific literature or doing therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, I am automatically limited. I'm limited by the thought, what was testable, what was a guideline, what was a protocol. But when I quiet all that, there are times I just know what to do. There are times I'll be in a therapy session without thought and I say things that I never thought about. When I wrote down in that journal, in that previous podcast, things were written down that I never thought about. And Sean made the comment, yeah, that's not Roger. 
you hear me talk every day. Mm-hmm. My normal thought. You grew up with me. You know my. We've had similar programming. Yeah. You know the normal thought. So when I say things that I never learned, that that my mind doesn't usually create, then it's coming from another place. That's the flow. That's the flow. That could be your higher self. That could be intuition. Intuition is a whole nother area where one might say that it's coming from another dimension. We're also limited with our dimensions, our physical world. The science around that is quantum physics, Mm -hmm. right? So remember, we are all limited by what is available to us at a given time in the evolution of human development. If we got in a time capsule and went back to the year 1683, we would know so much more, right? But we might get burned at the stake as witches. Mm -hmm. And so what we fail to recognize here is how limited... We'd be warlocks though, right? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) We would be limited... We are limited now. So if, if a highly evolved being came back to this time, right? if there is time and space, which there isn't, we create time and space, came back here and they know that we are limited by only what we know at this time and time of space. But we act like we know it all, which is one of the biggest frustrations for me in my field or in the current healthcare world is the arrogance of what someone believes they know is the, is, uh, is the best quality of evidence. And um, that knowing is truth. And then those who dispute that or debate that are, you know, use the word, you know, they're witches, <laughs> witches, conspiracy theorists, you know, crazy. But that's what anyone would be if they went back in time. Could you imagine like telling people, yeah, you know, we can fly. We, we can fly. Or, you know, you know, there's germs that are creating that infection. All you have to do is wash your hands. You know, things like that. Right? So my assumption here is that you, we have the ability to transcend time and space. And that's where I've evolved into what's called, I would guess more like transcendental uh, meditation. What does that mean? What's the difference between mindfulness and transcendental? So mindfulness is bringing your attention to the present moment yep. in this physical world with all atten- attention, right? You can do often do it with your eyes open. You know, you're fully connected to the present. Where transcendental meditation, eyes are closed. You are purposely trying to transcend consciousness. So it is the absence of thought. And it is bringing your attention inward deeply and trying to achieve that inner kind of peace and connect it to that higher self. So you are transcending. You are shifting consciousness. And just from a neuroscience perspective, it is probably a shifting of of brain waves mm-hmm. um, into more of a um, alpha. One of those waves. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying to remember the name. Of it's it. out. You know, alpha alpha waves are more abundant mm-hmm. in this uh, characteristic of wakeful rest. 
but you know it's like it's theta and alpha state while like the thinking state um where your mind is like working mm-hmm. you know it, it it it's judging it's evaluating is a different um different brain waves are doing that um you know and i wish i knew that offhand it which st- stimulating different parts of the brain it is stimulating kind of I, I think it came up in our podcast with um the meditation podcast spirituality you yeah. you discussed the brain waves and and she said which one it was i can't remember off the top of my head yeah i'm not sure if it's if it's delta or beta 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 is That's our it. is our working mind right and with the relaxed attention that comes with meditation, our brain waves are entering into um, alpha and theta states. Okay. So I, can, I know the difference between the different experiences of consciousness. I, I seek to transcend, but don't all, aren't always able to do it. So um, my actual meditation practice practice will probably be uh, mindfulness on some days and more transcendental and as i grow and i get more it's like a it's a skill it's a muscle right you just can't go into the gym every once in a while and then expect to get stronger my practice just becomes enhanced and then so the the benefits of that then are entered into your day-to-day life you're it's easier for you to, to observe where your mind is working and the emotions that you're having. It's, you, you spend more of a conscious period of time bringing your attention fully to the present moment, which en- enhances that experience. So there was a getting back to me trying to get into you know where you are, and so I would practice, but there's a study that was done called the Wandering Mind Study. Mm-hmm. You, you're familiar with that? No, but I'm very familiar with I the think, wandering mind. If you, I think the, the one of the names of the doctors was Killingsworth. If you look it up, but in essence, um, they they just did studies on individuals um, that literally their minds wandered as they were doing things. So what it, whatever it is they were doing, okay, cooking, mm-hmm. but if their mind was thinking about other things, and what they found, because I can't go through the entire study, it would be boring. But what they found is that the more individuals that were unable to be focused on the present, on what they were doing, because their minds were going all over the place, were the most unhappy. There's no doubt. Hmm. The mind creates misery. The mind creates misery. Learn and train yourself to be fully. And you will enhance your mental health. There is no doubt about this anymore. That re, that consistent mindfulness and or meditative practices enhances positive emotions and experiences. And it is related to a decrease in depression and anxiety symptoms. Now, often the questions are like, well, what's the minimum amount? Mm-hmm. And how often to achieve mm-hmm. the benefit? What's my dose? The dose. Yeah. <laughs> How do you maximize the uh, the ben- the benefits of of meditation? You know, let's face it; we live in this busy world, um, and there are people ask, "All right, if I'm gonna 
if I'm going to increase this practice, um, how much do I have to do? And uh, what are the actual benefits? So how long should you meditate to see results? According to a 2018 study published in Behavioral Brain Research, meditating for 13 minutes a day for eight weeks led to decreased negative mood state, enhanced attention, working memory, recognition memory, and decreased state anxiety. The study also found the participants who meditated for eight weeks had more significant results than those who meditated for four weeks. Although it is not an exact science, the consensus seems to be that you should aim for at least 10 minutes a day, at a minimum. For each person, they may respond differently. But at least 10 minutes a day, closer to 15. And you're just going to have to give it two months to achieve the benefits. Because there was a difference between the people who did it for four weeks compared to eight weeks. Hmm. Um, can we talk about intuition? Ugh. You were talking about the flow state. You're going back to your basketball game. Yeah. And I think we've all experienced a point in our life where we may have unknowingly or unintentionally entered into a flow state. Maybe something happened in our life and we're like, whoa, how did I, how did I know that? How did that happen? Or how did I end up doing that? And you made me think of a, a story. There was an, a Navy SEAL. I think I'm going to have to double check this and I'll put it in the show summary. I think his name is Mark Devine. Um, and he was, I'm going to say in, in a flow state, I think he was, it was in a, a SEAL training exercise, live bullets. So he was probably so focused on that present moment in the, in the job that he was doing, not being distracted by anything else. Um, and I, um, I believe it was a live training exercise with bullets and he was in a situation and he heard somebody behind him say duck and he ducked immediately and a, a bullet whizzed over his head, probably saving his life. And he turned around to thank the person behind him and there was nobody there. Now he has his own theory of what possibly could have happened in that moment, but that is a level of intuition that could probably only happen when you're so focused on the present moment. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, my thoughts are, you know, there's what I think and then there's what I know. So I can think about it and be limited right now to only what we're aware in this physical world in this time and space. So do you want me to tell you what I think or what I know? What you know. What you know, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to hear what he thinks. <laughs> uh, what I know is that uh, we have a higher self, a soul. And our soul has a wisdom that extends beyond anything that can be experienced rationally or reasonably in this physical plane. I also know that the soul is eternal and there is a there is purpose for all of our souls. And within that I do believe there is a, a a connection to various dimensions and there are guides and there are we you can call it based on whatever your religion is you can call it an angel 
you can call it a spirit guide or you can call it uh, any form of higher being that are present. And it is through that experience, this divine wisdom is what we can call intuition. So if you quiet the mind and the absence of mind and you are just responding based on that gut or that experience, that's where truth lies. If I can encourage anybody, to, if you're making any decisions, quiet the mind and pay attention to the gut. If it feels right, do it. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. But how do we lose our ability to trust our guts or an intuition? It is, it is our minds. Our prefrontal cortex that it tries to like problem solve, right? You're constantly weighing your options and thinking too much. Yes. Yeah. That's the last part of our brain to develop, if I remember correctly. One of the things that is really hard for those who've survived trauma is they will say that they never, they didn't trust their gut, that they're, they, they knew it was a dangerous situation. This could be a, something where they experienced potentially like a sexual trauma, rape victim or so forth, or an assault victim in some way, or they walk themselves into a dangerous situation. And it leads to self-blame. Mm -hmm. And the, the self-blame is so toxic and so painful. And you live with that then. You know, there's something wrong with you. You could have prevented that suffering. Therefore, you are to blame. And we are so limited. And just on a, just on a note, when someone harms us or hurts us, the only person to blame is that person. And that person, the one who did the destructive act, who traumatized the individual is completely responsible for that behavior, not you nor I. Yet I understand what they are saying. They're saying I could have avoided it. But then we feed more into, well, then we have to worry. Then we have to be in our own heads all the time to be able to predict the next bad thing that can happen. And I don't think it works like that. I think that just creates more misery and more suffering. But the more we can be connected to the present moment with the absence of thinking and evaluating, we can be aligned with our intuition. And our intuition is a divine wisdom. That, that is the absence of language. That is knowing. That is all-knowing. The more we can learn to quiet our minds to be able to be more connected to the divine wisdom that exists, the better decisions we are going to make. Now, regarding a flow state, right? A lot of us talk about the uh, in performance of flow state. It is, you know, obviously it's the absence of time and space. There is no time. Many people, when they say that they're in a flow state, time flies, right? Our experience is mm -hmm. completely different. When we're in a flow state, hours could go by where we're just in experience. And when you're not in a flow state, you could be bored or restless or uncomfortable or worried. Time can go real slow. So our experience of time is different. But the truth of the matter, there is no time. There's just an eternal now. 
That's a lot to take in. But, <laughs> <laughs> can, but based off of what you said, if with the soul, uh, you know, other, other, other times and places. So that just leads me to believe that is it possible then that a lot of our, our stress, uh, trauma, things that, that we think about our thoughts could be from other times and places. Interesting enough that there's a, there's a very strong research base on two things that are really important. Uh, past life regression being one of them. Uh, things that are not in modern Western, we are so limited by what's, prevent, what's presented to us. If you are just the typical, I, I call them normies, you know, you just, you go by your day and you're influenced by all the technology and the media and the television. Uh, you don't meditate. You are, your entire consciousness, your entire worldview, your reality is completely shaped by what others want you to believe or think. Culture. Your culture that you live in. So when it comes to science, what is presented to us is purposeful. It's purposeful to serve the entities which are presenting it. It doesn't stop people from doing scientific work because we have free will. We have freedoms. So you can do all the scientific work you want. So there are labs on near-death experiences. There are labs on past life regression. There are therapies and treatments where the use of these meditative practices or hypnosis allows people to access previous lives. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know that Columbia University does this work. So past life regression is a type of therapy. Uh, Brian Weiss, who I think we, you and I both have read his work, yeah. is a, a, a psychiatrist, yeah. Harvard trained, right. who used hypnosis on a patient back in, I don't know, 1980. And that patient was able, through hypnosis, to go back into past lives. And so much information came out. That's un, it's, this is a guy who was a typically trained psychiatrist, rational, reasonable, bright. And in her past lives, she was able to access what we call masters, who after a life review gave you all the information. And she informed, she knew that his son died. She knew things about his life because they had a soul connection from previous lives. It's so crazy to think about, it is. but there's enough examples of it that it's hard not to believe the possibility of it. And, and I'll share, I'll share a personal story. I have a friend who, um, when her daughter was very young, they walked into a church and she started pointing at saints on the walls and saying their names. And she had no exposure to that to religion or knowing any of that and it freaked them out and i don't think she could do it now but she was so young for some reason she was able to recall or bring those memories forward that's what the research says is uh the younger you are the more you remember your previous experiences including those connected with the higher spirit in god so we have we have documented situations that one in, in past life regressions, people speak ancient languages that mm -hmm. they never learned. Mm -hmm. uh, we have situations, there's a Netflix special on this where there was a, a boy who knew from very young 
all the details of his previous life, which was he was a World War II pilot, and then went and visited the family of his uh, previous life. Jesus. Yeah, there's a Netflix special. Go go look at it. Uh, You can watch it. So you have kids who remember the details of their past lives. You have situations where a three-year-old who might have brought a baby, might have, their parents might have had another baby, and then the three-year-old walks into like the, the infant and says, baby, I'm starting to forget. Can you tell me what God is like? I'm starting to forget it. Things like that Whoa. when they haven't even been exposed to like religion or anything. And then we have the work of Dr. David Mooney on uh, near-death experiences. So this is well, well documented. And the thing is everyone who dies and comes back, you know, so I mean, they are dead, as our science knows it, on the operating table, and time goes by. Their soul floats and experiences everything that people are saying and doing at that time, and then they are also experiencing people in the waiting room. They, they can come back, once they return to their physical body, can tell exactly what everyone was doing and thinking while they died. Mm-hmm. And the experience is documented, and there's so many near-death experiences, right? I read a lot of books and when I was like 20 years old. I just got fascinated with the subject, and I would just sit there and read some of them. They all report the same exact experience for the most part. Mm-hmm. Same thing in past life regressions. So when you do die, you do experience an overwhelming sensation of love that no human word can describe. And you connect with the souls of your loved ones in different form than what is the physical body, but you recognize it immediately and you understand it. And you have you continue to walk towards it in in it's kind of considered a bright light, you're with them. But there's something that happens, is it's called a life review. We all, our souls, will go through a life review where you will experience the, your entire life again, but through the experience of everyone around you. Mm-hmm. You will feel how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And in that life review, you are enhancing and learning. Your soul is growing through that. And you are given an opportunity to return to the physical body if you choose, like if your mission or your purpose or your dharma was unfulfilled, you can get returned back to your body. No, everyone says they don't want to because how amazing and beautiful the experience is, the divine wisdom, the divine love, everything you know. But your soul can make an active choice to complete its purpose. It's usually like a loved one intervenes and says, you're not done yet. Exactly. And then boosh, you're back. You're back. Yeah. And everyone's experience in life then changes. Yeah. You can never really go back. But the power of knowing that everything is going to be okay is the wisdom that they bring back. The possibility alone should bring many people peace. And it, and it does. This idea that everything was chosen for divine purpose and everything is as it should be, as people return they no longer worry. They trust 
they get more connected to the present moment and they engage in things that are much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. They are done protecting the ego. They are finished preventing threat. And they began, they, they then begin to enhance their life experience, which tends to be around some common themes across world religions, which are love, forgiveness, compassion, and uh, just engaging with your, you know, your fellow human beings. Because you learn through your life review that we're all one vibration that's connected. Everything makes sense, but there are no words for it in the physical realm. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine that after listening to that, we're going to have skeptics and you're going to have, I'm sure. So you, you, we can provide that there's scientific evidence of all of what well you just established. Okay. Major, major American so academic institutions. A lot in like the last 10 years with like neuroimaging and stuff like that. Right. So right. Like no, I'm ta- we're talking th- what? Wait, what year is it? it, it it's <laughs> well, I know it goes back to 5,000 BC. 40, but in terms no, of I mean, like, as far as like scientific documentation yeah. in what we would consider modern academia, you know, we're talking about, God, 40, 40 years. 40 years now. Yeah, it's, listen, yeah, if the only 80s, way yeah. you become, you, you throw out the word skeptic, the only way you become a skeptic is, is if you assume that everything in this physical world is at this plane is. is as is, right. right? And then the idea that it could be any different than how you think about it is such a, a level, a high level of like arrogance and ignorance. Yes. Because it wouldn't, it doesn't even make sense reasonably. That would be saying that what somebody knew in the year 350 AD is all there to be known. And so, I mean, a mat, what is the world going to be like in 2000 years? We don't know. There'll be an evolution where what, how we experience the world right now it won't look anything like that. So just you have to acknowledge the limitations. With that, you bring an open mind. And with an open mind allows for you to shift the story, for you to learn. And that learning is the enhancing of the experience. You might be able to evolve your soul faster. And then, of, of, of course, in, in this idea and what people write about, especially in past life regression, is that there are higher evolved souls amongst us. They come back in different forms. They might have been Jesus at one time or uh, Buddha at another. Everybody can't be Jesus, though. That's the thing with like the past life regression therapy. Why are the people always somebody famous? They're not. Sometimes it is, though. At I've, least maybe, I've been re- maybe that's Hollywood misleading me. Oh, but. you see, you're, you're a normie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, to be no, to be honest with you, in you know, in all of those, uh, all the documents that I've been reading over the past or two or three months, uh, most of the time, you know, when you look back at your previous ones, it, there's a lot of painful lives. Yeah, ones of trauma and uh, poverty mm-hmm. and pain because you have to experience the separateness. You come here to experience the separateness. So if that is the experience of divine joy and wisdom, in order for you to understand it's how uh, it, it's power, you'd have to experience the other end. All right, so let's end it with one last thing. We talked about some really powerful things, some experiences that some people 
encounter on, on this journey and when they settle into that state, everybody's on the bell curve. And some people may take on a meditation practice and, and never experience something so profound. But there's still health benefits that they're getting from it. What do you say to somebody in terms of making it a discipline and making it a daily routine? Entering into daily practice will create a profound experience. <laughs> okay. Even if that profound experience is the moments of your life, they become more profound. Think about it like going, what was that, uh, that movie where they go from black and white into color? Oh, um, Wizard of Oz. Oh, there's lots, but yeah. that's one. Okay. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of. <laughs> well, that was like the original one, you know. So yeah. it's like going your your world is black and white into an enhanced color mm -hmm. because you are now aware of things that you were not aware of before. Food tastes better. Sex is better. Uh, the experiences, the mundane experiences of your life, become enhanced. I am telling you. Most people probably won't go into daily practice, right? But I'm telling you, to motivate you, if you choose to do so, it will then become a profound experience. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis, or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.